dude, you got to go for like the biggest swing version of this. Go as fast as you can towards the best vision of this. And I was like, yeah, I totally 100% at that point, like believed he could do it. And I was just like, I'm going to help you do it whatever way I can, and you know, including help you raise some money and find other people that are willing to invest as well. So yeah, that, that's the story. I mean, I can't emphasize enough like how many questions I asked <laughs> to get to the point where I could like even have this conversation. But yeah, once I sort of understood what the value was and what is it specifically that needs to be done, it's hard to stop thinking about it because it's like so transformative. Hello again and welcome. I'm Eric Jorgensen. I don't know much, but I have some very smart friends. And if you listen to this podcast, then no matter who, where, or when you are, you do too. Together, we'll explore how technology, investing, and entrepreneurship will create a brighter, more abundant future. Today, my guests in that effort are Ethan Lusbrock and Eli Dorado. Ethan was a battery engineer at multiple startups who has worked in very relevant labs at MIT. He is now the founder of Oros Energy, a startup that's building the world's highest energy density batteries. Eli studies, quote, transformative hard technology stuff as the senior research fellow at the Center for Growth and Opportunity in Washington, D.C. He has a PhD in economics and writes at elidorado.com. The three of us today will explore the coming groundbreaking new tech in batteries, specifically lithium ion batteries and all of the ways that they will change transportation, power, electronics, air travel, even augmented reality. In the next hour, you will learn how batteries are about to become much more capable. A huge step function is coming. Uh, what the world will look like when they do, the path to fully recycled, reusable batteries, and some very interesting parallels at the end between the current battery industry and oil before Rockefeller. This podcast is one of a few projects I work on to read my book, blog, newsletter, or invest alongside us in early stage tech companies. Please visit ejorgensen.com. As I'm sure you know, nothing on this podcast is ever financial advice or a solicitation to invest, but I want to offer a specific disclosure on this episode. I am a small investor in Ethan's company, Oros. We invested through Rolling Fund, the early stage tech fund I manage with my two partners, Al and Bo. You can invest alongside us in great founders like Ethan. These early stage startups often fundraise really quickly and really quietly. We are lucky to gain access to some of these great companies and we welcome you to join us. The past year, we've invested in 22 companies, including ALO, who's building nuclear fission microreactors, Gently.com, who's building the Amazon of secondhand shopping, and a construction company powered by flying drones. It's very cool. I hope to do an episode with them someday soon. If you love these conversations and supporting the next generation of founders building these transformative companies, you'll love the portfolio and being a part of it. You can check out some of the podcast episodes with Bo and Al to learn more about Rolling Fun. I'm honored that over 50 listeners have already joined the fund as investors. You can learn more at rolling.fun, F-U-N, which is linked in the show notes below. Accredited investors can invest with us through AngelList today. And as always with a rolling fund, the sooner you invest, the more deals you get exposure to. If you have questions or would like to learn more, please reach out. Now with both ears and everything in between, please enjoy this conversation arriving in three, two, one. I'm very excited to talk to both of you guys. Eli, I had the pleasure of meeting you at, is that a Foresight conference, I think, in San Francisco? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I've been reading your stuff for a long time and love it. And Ethan and I had met previous to you guys meeting. And so, and then I found out you two were working together. So this is a really like great excuse to have you on the podcast, share what I learned from Ethan and just like bring the knowledge of batteries that you guys are working on to the world. So Eli, are you cool with maybe starting with a little quick background of yourself and introduction? Sure. Absolutely. So I am Eli Dorado. I'm a senior research fellow at the Center for Growth and Opportunity. I also just really love helping early stage startups get going. And so I work on a little bit, I have a small syndicate that a very low volume syndicate that I run and try to work with hard tech founders to get their businesses off the ground and do awesome things in the world, which is what I want to see. Nice. I think your pinned tweet is like just a rant of like all the futuristic things that you want to see built. And I hope we can, I hope we can do an yeah, episode absolutely. on maybe like each one of those things over time. I think batteries are on that list, aren't they? Yeah, they may not be actually. So I kind of was sleeping on batteries until I met Ethan and, and started talking to him about what exactly could we do if we had 
much denser batteries. Yeah. Well, let's do a quick intro for you, Ethan, and then we'll get into the good stuff. Yeah, sounds good. So Ethan Lusbrock, I founded a company called Oros. The main thrust of Oros is that I believe we can get to batteries that are 10x the energy density of existing batteries. And so one of the linchpins of that is sort of a a new cathode chemistry we're working on. And my background, I, I studied chemical engineering at the University of Minnesota. I worked at a couple startups, Solid Energy Systems and Polyjewel. And then I spent about a year at MIT doing cathode research and really worked closely with Professor Ju Lee at, at MIT. And that was, I think, formational in, in uh, shaping some of my views on batteries and you know, really inspiring some of the, the main thrust of Oros. Yeah. Let's start with dessert and see like what why are batteries so important? Like Eli, what did you wake up to in the last little bit that Ethan might have opened your eyes to? Well, there's so much that changes when batteries become denser. So first of all, like batteries become cheaper when they become denser. So so if you look at there's some research by a guy named, I think, Micah Ziegler, who kind of looked at what determines the cost of uh, what has contributed to the cost of battery declining battery costs over the past 30 years or so. And he finds that charge density is like the number one factor in sort of reducing the cost. So if we want to keep driving the cost down, like that's, we've got to go after new chemistries that increase density. We're kind of right now in a world where we're like continuing to do like very incremental optimizations of basically existing known chemistries. And it's really important to unlock new ones. So then, I mean, when you think about batteries being cheaper and denser, because it's not because they actually come together, you know, you're, you can get into this wild world where your car, you know, your electric car, first of all, like actually is cheaper than a combustion engine vehicle now because the batteries are cheaper. And then people talk about range anxiety as being like a big obstacle to electric car adoption. Well, that goes away if you can make your car have a batter, a range that's like longer than you can drive in a day. Right. Like, so if you can, if you can get like a thousand plus miles of range, then you don't have range anxiety anymore. Nobody, nobody worries about it. It actually changes. Like you don't need as many charging stations on the highway anymore. Right. Like, like that becomes like much less important if you're never going to charge on the highway anymore because you just charge at home and, or on, you know, at the hotel or whatever. And then you just keep driving. So it completely changes cars. I spent part of my career in aviation. I was at Boom for several years, uh, the first policy hire leading their policy team. So I think a lot about the aviation industry. And the aviation industry is completely bottlenecked on sort of for EV toll aircraft and other like sort of subsonic commuter planes and stuff like that on energy density, right? Like so, so the number I've heard is you need like 400 watt hours per kilogram in order to make any of the math on this close. And you really probably need a little bit more on that to make it a viable business. And so I think if we actually want, our, you know, there's this book, Where's My Flying Car? If you actually want your flying car, you need a, it's a fantastic book. Yes, yes. One of the things that will unlock your flying car is battery density. And then I just think there's probably a million different things. So, so if you think about like, okay, so like Apple, I guess this is coming out in several weeks, but Apple just, well, I guess last week, unveiled their new headset, right? Their new VR headset. And it's like, okay, it's got two hours of battery life and it's got like its external battery pack and they didn't want to put it on your head because it weighs too much. That right there is like, immediately we see like, oh, it's just, it's the bottleneck there is battery density. Now, I hope we do a lot more than just like personal computer devices and stuff like that. But I just think throughout the whole economy, there's going to be all kinds of things that are enabled by denser batteries. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to mention there's a, I think, I don't know where this project has gone, but Google at one point had a a project where they were sort of trying to do some AR stuff within a contact lens. So, so basically having a micro battery in the lens on your eyeball. And there again, it was just like, they couldn't get good enough batteries to last long enough in a small enough format to like fit there. And so you know, that's sort of like a weird other AR application for this stuff. I spend a lot of time also thinking about like electricity and the electricity grid and electricity markets and electricity generation and stuff like that. And a big thing that people talk about is like, we need lots more transmission and, you know, we need to build these plants, you know, these solar plants in the middle of the desert and sort of pipe the, pipe the electricity into where people live and stuff. And man, I just think like if you had ultra cheap batteries because they're denser, right? And so the same amount of materials 
is used, but the same mass of materials is used, but you get a lot more power out of it. It could be trivial to put like 100 kilowatt hours of battery in like every home in America. And, you know, and then all of a sudden, like solar panels really become viable, like rooftop solar becomes really viable. And you could even like disconnect everybody from the grid, like every residence that is like not an apartment building, right? If you have some rooftop and you have, you know, 100 kilowatt hours of storage, that is enough in huge swaths of the country to just completely decouple from the grid. And you don't need to be on there at all. And you save all the fight that we're having now about like, how do we increase transmission on the grid? Or how do we do interconnection? And all this stuff. That all goes away. So it's, there's so much that it just solves. And like, those people can stop fighting and they can just get back to work doing other productive things. <laughs> well, let's hope they stop fighting. They could stop fighting. Let's see. The renewables power shifting all gets easy. The nuclear, the like adjusting anything that's stored through nuclear. Like I think I've heard Elon talk about like for the electrification of the whole economy, we just need and transition to sustainable energy. We just need massive, massive, massive amounts of batteries that we don't yet have. And the better they are, the fewer we're going to need. Yeah, I mean, that's like, a, I think, an underappreciated point about higher energy density batteries is for a given amount of storage, you have to process a given amount of materials. If you, your materials hold more energy, like you just have to process less materials. So it means like less manufacturing capacity, less plants that need to be built, even some things as trivial as like transporting these batteries after they're made gets easier because you can fit more on a truck or a, a rail car. So there's these weird like synergies where as you go to higher and higher energy densities, it just like makes everything cheaper. Could you explain, Ethan, a little bit about why energy density is like the key metric for evaluating a battery's quality? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like encompasses all of the the input. So it's I don't know, this might be a, a bad reference, but some engineers will be familiar with like non-dimensional numbers. And usually these numbers are like they try to encompass all of the important parameters for, you know, whether it's flow in a pipe and the number gives you some indication of the behavior of that physical system. And so for batteries, it's like for different applications, you know, it determines how much energy you have, but also how much weight penalty comes with that energy. And so if you like the amount of electrons goes into it, the weight of the materials goes into it, the sort of embodied cost associated with that, making that weight of materials goes into it. And so it's just like sort of all encompassing metric that we use to measure like how, how efficient it is. And it's not even just specific to batteries. Like you can, it's sort of usable across fuels. So there's this great book by Vaclav Smil that he just details like how almost everything is can be measured across different systems as energy or power density. And so he looks at like, okay, how much land is needed for a given energy source, how much the shift from like wood-based fuels to coal to oil, and basically how as we've shifted to higher and higher energy density materials, we just get much better standards of living because things just get cheaper, performance of things gets better. And so you need to spend less time, less energy, less resources to do the things that you want to do, whether it's cooking or traveling or heating your home. Where does energy density come from in a battery? Eli, you sort of alluded earlier to the, the chemistry that happens to a given mass input for a battery. And I know that's, Ethan, where you where you worked for a while, but can we give a sense of that? Because it feels a little like alchemy, right? Like the same amount of mass goes in, but due to the way that you process it and manufacture it and what goes in, like very different capabilities sort of come out the other side. So maybe I should give the like sort of, let's, let's take a stab at a layman's answer and then Ethan can like tell me I'm, I've got it or I don't have it, right? <laughs> and so, so, so the layman's answer, I think, is like, with how are you actually storing the lithium ions on each side of the battery, right? Like, are you storing them? Are you kind of like not reacting them and like holding them in between like a lattice between other stuff? Or are you reacting them and making them part of a, an additional molecule? And it turns out if you store them in a sort of reactive way, then that enables like much higher density of those ions and then that in turn allows you as as they move from side to side then that allows more electrons to to obviously flow across the uh the connection points 
So how did I do, Ethan? Ian, you can correct me. That was very good. I think the only thing I would add is, as you pointed out, like the electrons are stored in these reactions between lithium and other materials. And so if they're reacted, they're stable. So you can sort of imagine it as like, a, you know, there's a reservoir on top of a hill and a reservoir on bottom. And lithium, if you have pure lithium, it's just super reactive. And so, you know, it's not very reversible. So you, you can't really go back and forth. But if you have like materials on either side, then it's reversible. And so the whole idea of getting to higher energy density is like lowering the weight of these other materials that lithium reacts with in proportion to like how much lithium you have. So it's, it's always like this ratio of like active to inactive materials. And so if you can just like minimize all of the inactive stuff and make more lithium be part of the reaction, then you'll get better batteries. And it's not specific just to lithium. Like you, you can use, traditionally we've had like lead acid batteries. Some people are working on sodium, potassium type batteries, but as it turns out, lithium's super light and is incredibly good for, for batteries because it's so light. That was one of the things I was excited about as I sort of started to wrap my head around your approach is like, it's kind of staggering that we use lithium ion at basically all the scales that we were talking about, right? From like homes to cars, to laptops, to phones. I don't know if you remember, like was the contact lens thing also a lithium ion battery? Yeah, they were trying to use lithium battery for sure. There's really like beyond lithium, if you think lithium's only like seven atomic mass units. So there's very few elements that are lighter than that, like hydrogen and helium, but hydrogen ha comes with a, a whole host of challenges. Helium's very scarce. So luckily, like lithium without, you know, despite all of the scaremongering is like relatively abundant. And so like that sort of abundance with the lightness of the metal makes it a good pick. Like beryllium right. could be theoretically uh, denser, right? Like because it's got like two charge units for just like two more uh, atomic units, mass units. But yeah, it's like insanely expensive. And there's all kinds of like problems with like reacting it. So lithium's probably the best that we're going to do. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the other challenge is like with metals that can hold that have like more than one electron, it the sort of multivalent species is what those are called. And it, it adds like, it's sort of like orders of magnitude more complex to make systems with those because like the first electron you put on it is easier, but the second one makes it very, very hard. And the it makes it very sluggish when you're charging and discharging. Yeah, it also builds upon the existing battery supply chain that we've got, right? So like we don't have to find rare earth minerals or synthesize any new things. It's just like, an improvement of the manufacturing, the chemistry really piece of the manufacturing process that goes into these, the same kind of batteries that we're already building that can represent this huge sort of step function in, in capabilities. And I think it's, it's worth sort of highlighting how big that is. Like Eli, maybe you are the best suited to sort of give it a little bit of a history of like battery improvements historically, but this is a, has a potential to be like a very, very big jump. Yeah, I think that's right. It's a huge, enormous potential. I think what, to riff on one of the things you mentioned in terms of like mining and acquiring minerals and stuff, obviously, like logically, like if you're denser for the same amount of minerals, you're reducing your dependence on mining, on mining new minerals. You're reducing your dependence on importing minerals from countries that could be hostile or countries where they where, where, you know, there's human rights conditions you don't want to mess with and, and so on. You're just making the whole thing you know, much, much more efficient, but also just like better from a geopolitical standpoint, you know, in terms of the improvements that we've had over the years, you know, my understanding is like lithium ions batteries have been around for several decades in some form, and they have just sort of gradually improved over time, you know, sort of the industry has operated on this I sort of incremental taking incremental steps forward and improving the chemistries, you know, relying on materials that get cheaper, like changes in the chemistry of this sort of the mix of like the other minerals involved. So, so a nickel, manganese, cobalt, for example, they've shifted from like one to one ratios of one to one to one ratios of kind of those to like eight to one to one ratios just to economize on cost. People have been more recently working on batteries that don't require those minerals like lithium ferrophosphate batteries that avoid some of that mineral usage, but also 
they come at a weight penalty. So again, they're like less dense than than sort of the cutting edge lithium ion batteries. And so I think that, you know, this space, I think there's, you know, we've close to exhausting the gains from like sort of the traditional way of doing things in terms of just continually optimizing the process. And really, we're at a, a point where we do need new chemistries to be able to drive the space forward. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's 100% right. I think, so I guess John Goodenough introduced lithium cobalt oxide in 1970. It took a couple decades and like Sony really like launched the first lithium ion battery with graphite and lithium cobalt oxide. I think, I don't think Sony even really recognized like how big it would be. And certainly I think Goodenough didn't really necessarily recognize it either. Um, and it took 50 years for John Goodenough to actually receive like a Nobel Prize for his work. But I think people have really come to realize like how big it was. And, you know, to, to Eli's point, like, it has just been incremental stuff that they've done. And, and they basically swapped out, like he, he mentioned, different transition metals. So cobalt and sorry, nickel and manganese for, for lithium cobalt oxide. And it's actually still like more or less the same in terms of energy density. And so a lot of the gains have just come from scale, some manufacturing improvements. And like, we're still like, as time has gone on, we've just been approaching the price of those materials since the energy density is not changing. And so if you can both use higher energy density materials and eliminate some of those costly materials that they use for existing batteries, then you can sort of introduce a new, like, shift that curve up, if you will, and give like a new parameter space to optimize. And so like the more shifts you can do of that curve, the more applications open up for batteries. And I mean, I think batteries, like a lot of people have recognized that batteries are used in all sorts of places today that many people thought they never would be. And, you know, some of these applications didn't even exist when the first batteries were introduced. So like, a lot of people have recognized the importance of how computing has advanced with Moore's law and how instrumental that was for the introduction of something like the iPhone. But one underappreciated advance included in the iPhone in 2007 was like how the lithium ion battery played a central role for enabling the, the sort of power usage that they needed. I think b- batteries have a really interesting interplay with power draw as well, right? Like there's a company, uh, I think SF based uh, called impulse labs, right. And they're trying to solve for like, how do we get more induction cooktops installed? Right. So right now, like I have a gas range at home and, and I'd love to have an induction cooktop, but if I wanted to do that, I would have to get an electrician come out and like run a new line from my kitchen to my electrical panel. And because the power draw of those cooktops is just too high, unless you use a battery, it turns out. And so impulse labs, like what they're doing is they're like, putting a battery on it, like letting the battery charge, like when you're not using the cooktop, which is like most of the time, right? And then when you are using it, it's combining the draw from like AC and the battery in the battery itself has like enough power draw to power the whole cooktop, even if your power was like, we're completely disconnected from the grid. So it's like, you're kind of like, can save on sort of like the high power draw of batteries can like economize on like electricians needing to come out and like run new lines in your house, right? So it's like, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, I was just going to say that's almost like a micro. That's like the transmission point you made earlier, but on a micro scale, you're just like, yeah. Yeah, the more batteries, the cheaper batteries get, the more use cases expand for them, right? Like you could totally, like why aren't refrigerators sold with like a backup battery inside that can just keep your food cold for 48 hours if the power goes out? Like that should be a relatively simple, straightforward, easy thing to do. You can imagine your router having a small battery is like keeps your Wi-Fi up for 12 hours if your power goes out. Like these are small power draw things that like, especially as blackouts happen more and more, you don't have to power the whole home. You can like a lot of things will get included there. And what happens with a huge, you know, a seven, a five, seven, 10 X step function in, in energy density, like batteries become the default path for so many more things. I mean, a thousand mile range on a car is like, that's more than any gas car that isn't massively modified, right? Like that becomes a much better thing for much cheaper, like basically overnight. So it's easier, though still hard to imagine all the things that could get better. It's the second order of like where all the places batteries might go if they had these capabilities that they don't today is like really, really exciting. I think like there's other sorts of transmission that are 
you know, sort of riffing on Eli's transmission point is like, if you, you both have read, you know, where's my flying car. If we end up going to sort of a default, like flying car and think electric propulsion makes that a lot more feasible. It's a lot louder, a lot cleaner than gas options. But in that sort of world, like you maybe don't need as many roads going to all these places. Like think about all of the the roads we have, especially in like rural places that are sort of net net negatives on the system because you don't get as much economic value as you put in. And so like all of that could potentially go away if you just, you know, are flying place to place. And I think like people always think like, oh, well, you know, these flying cars will use so much more energy, but it's not always the case, right? Like it's, you know, if you're flying point to point, the most efficient way is a, a straight line. And so, you know, roads are rarely made in a way where you can go in a straight line from any point to any other point. And so there's all sorts of weird things that change and like uh, status quos that are sort of upended in that scenario. I think like personal transportation, like e-bikes and scooters are like, it's going to like, it's just going to completely transform and get like so much better, right? Like there's a lot of, we have like a, a bike share system here in the DC area and those are unpowered bicycles. But like if the batteries were not expensive, could imagine those are all like e-bikes now, right? And then that makes more people commute via bike, right? Like to work, right? And that like reduces congestion on the roads and that wear and tear on the roads. And like, so a million different second and third order effects from it being cheap. And if you go to like congested Asian city, like so many mopeds, terrible air pollution because of it. But like, what if you made those like electric and if everybody could have like a super awesome uh, moped and like get around town that way, that would be like, that's a cool future that I'd love to see. Yeah, a fully electrified city would be a little much more much closer to a, an urban paradise, I think. Yeah, quieter, cleaner, whisper smooth. Those are cool and efficient. Like you can build a much smaller electric vehicle than you can an internal combustion. Just like the number of moving pieces and just the total mass that has to go into it, stuff like that. We probably far surpass the use cases that like McKinsey imagined when they were estimating battery growth rate. At Eli, that was something in your we should talk about that, how you came to the syndicate that you chose to lead for Ethan here and like how you guys sort of got to know each other and put together. And though maybe the right place to start with that is is Ethan's story. So do you want to, Ethan, you want to say like sort of how you came into this industry, like how you picked up on batteries being such an important thing and decided to kind of devote your life to this this problem in this company? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess going way back, I uh, was sort of an environmentalist growing up and uh, got into engineering. I like read this magazine, Popular Science, and followed a lot of the early stuff that Elon Musk and others were doing at Tesla. And so I ended up going to University of Minnesota and and picked chemical engineering because it seemed like it was like a, a good way to solve environmental problems on the front end rather than cleaning them up afterwards. And so it seemed to me then as now that a lot of the stuff that people were trying to get to work, solar, wind, EVs were limited by the battery. And, you know, if you look at EVs today, like a huge amount of the cost is still the battery. If you look at like solar and wind adoption, it's, it's, you know, very limited by the cost of batteries. So yeah, I had this internship before my senior year where you know, I just didn't have enough work to do. I would ask for work and it was a small company, so they just didn't have enough for me. So I uh, decided to dive into the the battery literature and, and see what people thought w- was the future. And a lot of people were talking about lithium oxygen batteries and lithium sulfur and some of these chemistries. And so I tried to take a license for this, this technology my senior year at, at Minnesota. And being an undergrad, Professor Lee under, understandably said no. So I looked for jobs at a battery startup in the Boston area and went to solid energy systems, worked on sort of lithium metal anodes there for two years and just started showing up at Professor Lee's office every couple of weeks and built a relationship with him and then ended up getting hired into his lab where I again wanted to take this technology out. He, I think, is sort of notoriously, he's somewhat risk averse and is like really a perfectionist in the best way like he's uh you know the top of his field and is like a master of many different sciences and so he had me work on a slightly different cathode he he had me work on more of like a an adaptation to an existing cathode material 
And so I took that sort of from bench scale to pilot scale. And then the COVID hit, any sort of chance of starting a company with him at that time went to zero. And so I went to Polyjewel and designed an electrolyte for them that was like 50% higher energy density and about half the cost. I think my skill sets have grown through these experiences and my network has gotten a lot better. I saw that as the opportunity to really jump in and pursue this full time. And, and so I think the odds are much better now than they were when I was in an undergrad position. So I feel like much more confident in my ability to actually make this happen. Yeah, it feels like I mean your your vision is so compelling here and the gains the, the size of the prize is so big if we can build what you think we can build here. It feels like a lot of people have been rallying around this even at really early stages, which is super exciting and Eli's one of those people. So I, I want to hear the story that I haven't heard actually of you guys sort of finding each other and coming together. Yeah, so I first heard about Ethan from uh Austin Vernon, a friend of mine who is just like, "Hey, you know, I was, I was talking to guy Ethan and uh, he's got really cool battery ideas and you know he's trying to start something up you should talk to him so I did and I had a call with Ethan and tried to like understand what he was doing and sort of took me a while I don't have an electrochemistry background so I just sort of stayed in touch with Ethan for a while and just like kept peppering him with questions over Twitter DMs just like question after question like tell me about this and tell me about this and sort of like he would like refer me to like some papers and so i'd like read those papers and then sort of and then i'd ask more questions and stuff and i was like dude you got to go for like the biggest swing version of this go as fast as you can towards the best vision of this and i was like yeah i totally 100 percent at that point like believed he could do it and i was just like i'm gonna help you do it whatever way i can and you know including help you raise some money and find other people that are willing to invest as well so yeah that, that's the story i mean i can't emphasize enough like how many questions i asked <laughs> to get to the point where i could like even have this conversation but yeah once i sort of understood what the value was and what is it specifically that needs to be done it's hard to stop thinking about it because it's like so transformative and, and i'll add like part of my process also is like writing about it right so like i most of what i do in my day job is a lot of writing and so i think of like writing is a form of thinking and so like being able to like write write down a memo articulating you know why you know what's going on here and you know why is it valuable and what's it going to change i think that's a way of like actually confronting your own ignorance about what you don't know and then then it's like go back to Ethan and ask more questions but then when you get to the end of it you you actually know the stuff pretty well and you you have a pretty decent view of it yeah, I would second that. I think Eli's process has, has been incredibly diligent and he is super detail oriented and really like has, I think, better than almost anyone I've talked to understood all aspects of batteries and where and applications and markets and all of that. So it's, yeah, I think, you know, credit, credit to Eli on that. Yeah, Ethan was laughing when Eli was like, I asked a lot of questions. He's just like, yeah, it was a lot of questions. <laughs> But it's a lot to wrap your head around, especially I think, Eli, you alluded to the like what needs to be done. Like it's a lot easier to kind of understand the software development process or see a demo of a thing. And like that was a lot of what we talked about before we invested Ethan, too, is just kind of like, where are we now? Where are we trying to get? How much is it going to cost? Like, how do we underwrite some of this stuff? It's really because batteries is a scary place. And I think we can talk about why. But like there's been a lot of for some reason, a lot of like false claims or a lot of over optimism or something in mean, the history of battery technologies. I'm not sure what the right framing is there. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say which like there's like a spectrum of like over optimism to something more nefarious. And I think most of this stuff starts off at from like a, a good place, like of just like, you know, very optimistic people trying to to build something better. And yeah, I mean, like there's been a lot of these ventures that have raised lots of money and come to run up against like laws of physics or other challenges, manufacturing challenges down the road. And I think batteries probably more than a lot of industries is probably victim to like the, some of the like herd like or like lemming like mentality with with a lot of industries. And so like I think there's a few buckets where there have been just enormous amounts of startups, tons of money poured. And there have been some, I would say, minor successes. Like there are some like real companies that are around, but I think it just gets overshadowed by just like some the size and number of failures that are like adjacent. So yeah, I mean, without calling attention to too many of the failures, I think there's some great companies like 
early early on, like you know, in the early two thousands, A one two three systems like launched. They really like brought LFP or uh, you know lithium iron phosphate to market. You know, they were a legitimate company. They had a, a great product. They did end up going bankrupt, but not because of their product being inadequate, just because of unfortunate market conditions and some of their customers going under at, at the wrong time. And, you know, more recently, I think there's some great silicon companies, Group 14 and Sela that have made a lot of headway. So I think it is and can be a scary place, but I think there's still reason to be optimistic about battery improvements. Yeah, I think we have to be, right? Like there's a, probably a little bit of assumption that tons of resources are being poured into it and we can't outpace the current sort of incremental improvements that we've seen historically, but it's far too important and foundational of a technology to not invest heavily in the research and commercialization and manufacturing of something, especially when you see something with sort of this potential and without really any crazy costs or changes. There's no crazy rare earth things. You don't have to like change manufacturing process. We don't need any massive changes and things like we still get the charging speed and are able to sort of build on everything that the whole industry has already learned about the scale that we're producing lithium ion batteries. Like it seems almost too good to be true in an area where things that have seemed too good to be true are often like <laughs> have often been claimed, but it's such an important piece. And I think I mean, we, we talked a lot about the foundation of it and all how many things it's an input to, but it just seems like a moral imperative to like continue to invest in batteries. And I, I think we're seeing that more and more, like more of the electrification is driving that and the renewables investments are driving that too. One thing that I think is really interesting is, uh, you know, through like the Inflation Reduction Act and, and so on, like there's so many subsidies going into like scaling battery production. And like talking to Ethan, I'm not attributing this view to him, but like sort of what I'm wondering now is like, is that almost like premature? Wouldn't it be better to apply all the scaling like after we increased like further energy density, right? So I do worry a little bit that like the battery industry is like having this like sort of premature scaling effect where we have something that like kind of works. I think it's the same thing in renewables, right? Like we know that wind and solar work at least decently well. And so like there's a big push to like scale them. And then the thing that comes along with that is transmission. Like you do, if you're kind of trying to do wind and solar heavy grid with current technology, like you've got to put in a, like a lot of transmission and that is you know massively contentious, as I said. And so I think my like sort of a meta point here is like, let's get all the sort of gains on the science side and scale that and sort of like not just science, but like translational work. And if we can translate like a much better version of battery technology and then scale that, we'll be in in really, really good shape. And, you know, it's not the end of the world that maybe that we're scaling batteries because there is uh, Ethan's turned me on to plasma recycling. So that's maybe we can re recycle some, uh, some of those batteries uh, in, in different ways. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's there's a few companies now that are working on like you can you can basically take. Uh, battery materials and using a plasma pretty much restore it to brand new with very little energy and and uh, cost input and so it's like uh yeah it's just like a way of like refreshing battery materials so they do they still do like some mechanical separation but then you just like run it through the plasma and then at the end of it you have like something as good as virgin like battery materials yeah it's pretty cool stuff so once it's manufactured, it, it has like a, a much longer potential functioning life. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, the energy input for recycling this stuff and refreshing it is a tiny fraction of what it takes to like mine and move around and manufacture things as if like from scratch. And so at the end of it, like it'll all of the recycling will just basically reduce the amount of mining and, and other things we'll need to do. And then the sort of like end end goal or like final system looks like you not needing to mine hardly anything at all uh, and then you just like have good enough battery collection services to like recycle all of this stuff so yeah i mean there's sort of like a nice feedback loops there as well that would would drive down the cost of batteries because the cost of your your input materials would then just like trend towards the energy costs needed to refresh them Batteries are going to get very, very, very cheap in this scenario, right? Where we have but better chemistries and plasma recycling, it's going to get super cheap, like kind of no matter what. Yeah, absolutely. Over what time scale do you guys do you see those happening? It's a hard question to answer because it sort of depends on like what applications end up using batteries, and so we haven't even really scratched the surface on that question. And so it's 
So yeah, I mean, it's like for cars, like the turnover period for like the, our fleet of cars is like 20 years. And I think, I mean, we're not even at like 100% EV penetration yet. So this is sort of like probably multi-decadal timescales and like aerospace like hasn't even started electrifying. So it's, so yeah, I think it'll take a while, but, but yeah. And then I think on Eli's point on scaling batteries, I agree. Like it's probably optimal to scale the right chemistries and the point about like just getting our sources and and things in the US is good. I think there's, you know, I don't know, like, I don't think we're the only ones doing like putting our fingers on the scale. So I don't really want to make like a fairness argument, but you could make that argument. And I think it's just like, it's just going to become even more critical to have these industries in the United States. So just from a national competitiveness standpoint, like, yeah, we should, we need to be making these, these batteries. Yeah. Is, is that where some of the uh, policy tailwinds are coming from, Eli? Is it, is it sort of geopolitical considerations? Yeah, I think there's a lot of concern that in the next several years, right, there could be at some point a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, which, you know, I don't think Taiwan is like a major, major battery producer, but China is, right? And so what is the U.S. response to a Chinese invasion of Taiwan? I think nobody, I think we have like strategic ambiguity on it. We're not like saying what it is. And it may be that we're going to like decouple aspects of our economy from China. And, you know, what will China do as a response? Will they withhold sort of the goods that they're producing? Because they might say, well, no batteries for you. And so if all of Chinese battery production was, you know, withheld from the U.S. market, that could cause some problems. And so it is important that either the U.S. or allies are, are kind of the, are able to, you know, our allies preferably and, you know, not in East Asia where, you know, they might be susceptible to Chinese embargoes or whatever where we're able to, to sort of get them and have like full freedom of action, despite like any threats that we might face from sort of secondary effects from sort of a miscalculation to uh, invade Taiwan. And I think also, like, if we kind of prepare for that and kind of have the supply chain in place, that makes the sort of initial miscalculation less likely, right? Like, it makes war less likely if they don't think that the, if the Chinese don't think that that's like a source of leverage that they can use against the U.S., to sort of force us to like accept a takeover of Taiwan. And Ethan, I know that was kind of part of your, you were hearing that often as part of the motivation for people. It's like not just, and not just the manufacturing capacity, but the entire supply chain to really reduce the risk factors of, of like sole sourcing some of these things from places that our, our relationships may change to. I, I think the first time we met, you described yourself as wanting to start the standard oil of batteries. I want to like give you a chance to sort of fully explain that analogy because i think it's a powerful one yeah i mean uh so i guess the 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 comparison is like i think batteries are sort of in the same place now that the early oil industry was in in that you know oil started as this lighting fluid so people used it in kerosene lamps and then like it found use in cars and you know really exploded from there and like a lot of the lessons that you you could draw from the oil industry are also applicable today. So there's, there's all these crazy supply chain risks, whether geopolitical or just like supply demand mismatches. And so like the way this was typically solved or was solved in the oil industry was by vertically integrating. And so standard oil sort of went all the way up to drilling and producing their own oil and refining it and distributing it and marketing it. And so you know, you see like some players already starting in the battery industry. So notably like uh, CATL, it's a Chinese company that has about a third of the lithium ion battery market today has started to do some of this. And just to basically like smooth out some of these challenges, it's if you're producing cathodes yourself, or if you're doing lithium refining yourself, then uh, you're not going to be subject to like crazy price swings and like limit your your production that way and so all of these like upstream holdup problems or like supply chain shocks just end up manifesting at the cell level because that's typically where like automakers or uh, consumer electronics or or most customers are buying and so if you can have a steady stream of cells then you can you can take huge percentages of the market just by having that available 
so so oros wants to go the the final vision is sort of like all the way from raw materials to production and sales of finished cells yep ideally yes yeah at, at all different kind of formats right like anything from personal electronics up to cars homes grid batteries contact lenses which is a new one i didn't know about before <laughs> yeah i mean i think like there's certain like trade-offs with some of the battery chemistry so we talked about lfp and nmc today and they're good for better different things but if you can make a chemistry that's better on all metrics on cost and energy density and power density then there's no real reason that you'd want to use other other chemistries and then i think like you know the raw materials question is sort of a little bit up in the air because mainly because of the recycling factor so if you can there will obviously be mining going in the near future but it's possible that at, at some point we that just like stops being a thing at any sort of scale and so yeah that's you know one difference maybe between the battery industry and oil is you can't really reuse your uh, petroleum but yeah that's like sort of no, the, that's really the problem you know, isn't it full, <laughs> yeah yeah it is right but yeah that's like sort of like the full scale vis vision is like and even you know there's even like other underrated aspects of or like potential outcomes right so it's possible that in the future you would you know batteries become so cheap that you just like you don't end up buying them you just like take a lease for your battery or you have like a subscription plan for for batteries and then you send it back and then they refresh it and then you know send it back you, you buy it again or something or lease it again and what's the sort of stage process for where we are now to sort of getting to that like what do you need from me from eli from everybody listening to like get there in the near term because i think eli's point was was well made like this is let's you let's hurry like for a bunch of reasons not just sequential but like how good life gets on the other side of this like there's a lot to be gained by getting this thing commercialized and scaled and and distributed as quickly as we can i think this is a life-changing technological improvement and the, and the sooner we can all sort of put our shoulders against it and make it happen the better everybody's life is going to get yeah definitely i mean i think uh so for us specifically we're fundraising now that's uh taking up a lot of my time you know we're going to try to bring on some guys i know that are sort of world-class in in their specialties that i think could really accelerate the development of of a like commercial product not just like lab scale sort of invention and so you know i think the sooner we can get to a product the better and definitely financing helps with that i think people being aware of like the potential in in some of these these applications and and industries is is always a, a good thing as well there are certain aspects of like dispelling uncertainty so like uh, i think for the aerospace industry like the sort of status quo or the where where people are thinking today is like they're not really sure what the future propulsion could be because not all of them are really aware of like the potential high side of where batteries could go and so there's a lot of like you know hybrid or like sustainable sustainable petroleum or like hydrogen type systems being talked about but i think if they're presented with a, a good enough battery i think it just makes the most sense for those types of, of systems as well so yeah i think those are a few of the ways that we could move a little faster nice that's partly why i was really excited to see eli sort of bring his credibility and audience and syndicate to bear on this because i think your words carry a lot of weight eli and where you choose to focus and the things that you choose to highlight as is important and impactful on the future really like helps bring a lot of attention to it so there's a lot of scuttlebutt that happened once once your uh syndicate started and i thought it was really exciting and it's just fun fun to uh find something that has this kind of potential to rally around yeah absolutely like what i like to invest in is stuff that will change the world if it works and that you know i like like to go for the home runs and that's exactly what i think this is so if we can get 10x the battery density that's just a completely different world and and it's super exciting to be along for even part of the ride yeah that's how i feel too ethan i appreciate you picking this up and i feel like you're you're a man on a quest and it's really fun to be cheering for you and rooting for you alongside everybody else and i hope that you know the army got a little bigger today with people understanding sort of what we're going after and what can happen if you accomplish what you're what you think you can what we all know you can yeah appreciate let's be, it let's manifest <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And I really appreciate you guys believing in the mission here and, you know, we're going to do you guys proud. So we're going to get this to market as fast as possible. 
I appreciate you hanging out with us today. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked this episode, here are the episodes to queue up next. In episode number 32, I did a book report on Where's My Flying Car. We mentioned this book a few times in this episode, and episode number 32 is me talking through some of my favorite highlights, key ideas from the book. Uh, It's less than an hour long, but it'll give you a great overview of a book that is a little challenging to get through, but has some incredible important ideas and it has been influential on me and many other people that I've interviewed on this podcast. In number episode number 34, we interviewed the author of Where's My Flying Car, Josh Stores Hall. Both of those are great companions to this episode. And if you want another one, there's a deep dive on building the future of nuclear energy with Brett Kugelmass. That's episode number 58. Highly recommend all of those. They're popular episodes that are very much the same ethos, energy, and focus as this one. If you've loved this conversation, you feel inspired by Ethan and his vision, uh, you can get financial exposure to companies like Oros and founders like Ethan through our fund, Rolling Fun. Go to rolling.fun or click the link in the show notes to learn more. Now, if you would do me a very personal favor, pause, take four seconds to think of a friend, a family member, or a coworker who would enjoy this episode, just text them the link, take a screenshot, send them that. Those personal recommendations absolutely make the world go round, and there's no faster, easier way to make the future better than to show more people what is possible. I really appreciate you hanging out with us today. This is all about laughing and learning, building leverage, and compounding our faces off. What our brains aren't evolved to comprehend is how much leverage is possible in modern society. There's a revolution going on, man. Uh, Go pay attention to it. Get a part of it. Get exposed to it. You're going to make money along the way. You're going to have fun. The call to adventure. This is the new form of leverage. Take a few quiet moments for yourself. Breathe deep and be well. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.